Section 22 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Chapter 6, Florence 2, Machiavelli, by L. Arthur Byrd, Part 3. Such in broad outline were the chief views of Machiavelli concerning the nature of man and the general movement of history, separated from the limitations of any particular time and place. At first sight, they might perhaps appear visionary, remote, unreal, vitiated in some degree by ambiguities in the meaning of the terms employed and by hasty generalization, academic in character and out of relation to the storm and stress of a reawakening world. This impression would be only partially true. Machiavelli, living at a period of transition, endeavored in the presence of an unusual problem to push beyond its barriers and to fix the relations of what was local and temporal to the larger and more universal laws of political societies in general. It was only by enlarging the area of analysis and embracing the wider questions of history and ethics that it was possible to frame a scientific basis on which to erect the structure of practical politics. The theoretical foundation was essential. Interest was naturally most largely centered in that portion of his works which was the most unusual, but in reality it is hardly intelligible by itself. Ideas, long familiar in classical literature, may seem in their new context to bear little relation to what has come to be regarded as Machiavelli's main object. In reality, they are not extraneous nor incidental, but the logical Prius of the whole construction. Whoever began without securing his foundations was obliged to secure them afterwards, though, as Machiavelli reflected, with discomfort to the architect and danger to the building. It was his conception of human nature and of history that logically entitled him to use the experience of the past as a guide for the future. To justify his rejection of constitutional reform, where the material to be worked upon was thoroughly corrupt, and virtue imputed for a capital crime, to create new standards to which appeal might be made in judging practical questions, to throw aside the fetters of medievalism and to treat politics inductively. It was thus that he was led to look to the past, and especially to ancient Rome, for examples and models. Often he repeated with enthusiastic emphasis his abiding conviction that in his own day the teaching of the Romans might still be applied, their actions imitated, their principles adopted. He was criticized on this ground by Giuciardi and others, who, as they admitted only partially the postulates involved in Machiavelli's conception of history, rejected the appeal to ancient Rome as logically invalid. This specifically historical theory required an ethical complement. Machiavelli had formed definite opinions upon some of the fundamental questions of moral science. He has recorded his views upon what is now called the origin of morality, and also attempted to determine the real nature of good and evil, believing men naturally bad, and holding, therefore, that morality is non-natural, in the sense that it is distasteful to the untrained impulses in men, and not to be arrived at by evolving anything of which perhaps they are, in some unexplained way, capable. The question confronted him. How is right action to be enforced? Where does the obligation reside? Only one answer could be consistent. In the laws. 
To explain this, a reference was made to the origins of society. In the beginning of the world, as the inhabitants were few, they lived for a time dispersed after the manner of wild beasts. Afterwards, when they increased and multiplied, they united together, and in order the better to defend themselves, they began to look to that man among them who was the strongest and bravest, and made him their head and obeyed him. From this arose the knowledge of things honorable and good, as opposed to things pernicious and evil. Because seeing that, if a man injured his benefactor, hatred and pity were aroused among men, and that the ungrateful were blamed and the grateful honored, reflecting moreover that the same injury might be done to themselves, they resorted to making laws and fixing punishments for whoever violated them. Hence came the knowledge of justice. Consequently, when they had afterwards to elect a ruler, they did not seek out the strongest, but the most wise and the most just. There is a saying that hunger and poverty make men industrious, and the laws make them good. Thus, moral action in a civil society meant for Machiavelli chiefly conformity to a code. The moral sense is the product of law, or in the last analysis, of fear. The sanction of conduct was derived from positive institutions. Where no law existed, no action could be unjust. This admitted, the next stage was to interpret the notion of right, and to ask specifically what is right. Machiavelli replied in words that furnished at once a moral criterion and a positive conception of right. I believe good to be that which conduces to the interests of the majority, and with which the majority are contented. The scope and consequences of such a statement were not perhaps fully realized by him, yet the conception exercised some measure of control, possibly almost unconscious, upon his other views, and might be considered to furnish a sanction for much that is eccentric and immoral. Even as an isolated and incidental utterance, it remains a curious forerunner of more modern theories. It is therefore possible to construct from Machiavelli's data a list of the particular virtues which, though not free from the vice of cross-division, nor to be regarded as exhaustive or scientific, helps to widen and complete the conception of his teaching. The virtues, the possession of which would, in his judgment, be most praiseworthy, are these. Liberality, mercy, truthfulness, courage, affability, purity, guilelessness, good nature, earnestness, devoutness. The last was indeed of supreme importance to all members of society, and so essential to a ruler that whosoever was not reputed religious had no chance of success, and was therefore forced to preserve, as the absolutely indispensable minimum, the appearances at least of a religious believer. For the masses do not discriminate between religion and morality, it is from religion that moral truths are believed by the uneducated conscience of mankind to derive their noviator character. Speaking more specifically of Christianity, Machiavelli was aware that it had effected a very fundamental change in ethical conceptions. Our religion has glorified men of humble and contemplative life rather than men of action. Moreover, it has placed the summum honum in humility, in lowliness, and in the contempt of earthly things. Paganism placed it in high-mindedness, in bodily strength, in all the other things which make men strongest. 
And if our religion requires us to have any strength in us, it calls upon us to be strong to suffer rather than to do. Christianity, as understood by medieval society, appeared to add to the difficulties of combining the characters of the good man and the good citizen. Machiavelli looked for power. Whereas this mode of living seems to have rendered the world weak and given it over as a prey to wicked men, who can with impunity deal with it as they please? Seeing that the mass of mankind, in order to go to paradise, think more how to endure wrongs than how to avenge them. Such opinions provoked criticism and were attacked at an early period. Afterwards, they were, without offense, excused, defended, and outbidden. When the original obligation of morality and the standard of action had been fixed, it remained to inquire whether men were able to do what was right, i.e. whether they were free agents. The constant recurrence of the question in Machiavelli's writings is the measure of the importance it possessed for him. He gave much consideration to this primitive problem, which he called Il Sopra Chapo della Filosofia. He perceived that it was at least necessary to devise some intellectual compromise, which, while in no way claiming to offer a logical solution, should be clear and manageable enough for practical life. His examination was neither thorough nor profound. He did not distinguish the senses which the word freedom may, in this context, assume, and his reasoning was complicated by the intrusion of ideas originating in a mythological and figurative conception of fortune and in some measure by the lingering influences of astrology. Through all his writings runs the idea of a personified fortune, a capricious deity who is not merely the expression in a figure of the incalculable element in life, but a being with human passions and attributes. Here are the suggestions and examples of classical authors, and especially of Polybius, were decisive for Machiavelli, in whom, after the manner of his age, ancient and modern modes of thought were fancifully blended. I am not unaware, he wrote, that many have held and still hold the opinion that human affairs are so ordered by fortune and by God that men cannot by their prudence modify them, rather they have no remedy at all in the matter. And hence they may come to think they need not trouble much about things, but allow themselves to be governed by chance. This opinion has gained more acceptance in our times, owing to the great changes which have been seen and are seen every day, beyond all human conjecture. I have sometimes thought about this, and have partly inclined to their opinion. Yet, in order that free will may not be entirely destroyed, I believe the truth may be this. Fortune is the mistress of half our actions, but entrusts the management of the other half, or a little less, to us. This is the solution which, running through all Machiavelli's works, gave a special propriety to the repeated antithesis of fortuna and virtue, the same meaning would be expressed in modern phraseology by the statement that men determine their own lives, but only under conditions which they neither themselves create nor are able largely to control. Or that the will makes the act, but out of a material not made by it. Upon the basis of these data, Machiavelli attempted to fix some general rule of conduct for the guidance of the individual, applicable amid all the diversified conditions under which action can take place. 
Considering the relation in which the agent stands to the forces among which he has to assert himself, an ideal of conduct was needed which would enable a man who could have but a limited power of control over the conditions of his life to succeed. Failure was the seal of divine disapproval, and Machiavelli, as to all Italian politicians at this time, the one unpardonable sin. The essence requisite for success was, in his judgment, a constant adaptation between the individual and the surroundings of his life. Sufficient versatility of character, thus understood, would imply a perpetual adjustment of means to the needs of the moment. The ability to reverse a policy or a principle at the call of expediency and a readiness to compromise or renounce the ideal. The world is rich in failures because character is too rigid. The truism, circumstances alter cases, was interpreted by Machiavelli to mean that the pressure of external forces is usually stronger than the resistance of the individual principle. This formed the rational basis of his complaints, that no one who attempted to govern in Italy would alter the courses to which his genius inclined him, when facts had altered. Yet anyone who was sufficiently versatile would always have good fortune, and the wise man would at last command the stars and fate. In political life, such reasoning led to the rejection of morality, as the plain man understands it. A ruler was to remember that he lived in a world which he had not made, and for which he could not be held responsible. He was not obliged to act on any one principle. He was not to flinch if cruelty, dishonesty, irreligion were necessary. He was exempt from the common law, right and wrong, had really nothing to do with the art of government. In furnishing what appeared a reasoned justification for such tenets, Machiavelli interpreted to itself the world of contemporary statecraft and fixed upon politics the stamp of irremediable immorality, a result to which the rejection of medieval ideas need not necessarily have led. Such are the general principles which lie at the root of all of Machiavelli's teaching, and which serve to universalize all the particular rules and maxims with which his books are crowded. They have, with hardly an exception, their roots in the ancient world, and in nearly every case it can be shown how they were transmitted to him, and how by him the old material was forged and molded into new shapes. It remains to inquire how they were applied to the necessities of his own age and country. In 1513, Machiavelli was ruined and discredited, ready to despair of fortune's favor, and willing to accept even the humblest position which would enable him to be of use to himself and his city. Employment was slow in coming, and during enforced leisure he devoted himself to literature. The prints in the discourses were begun in 1513. The Art of War was published in 1521 and the eight books of the Florentine histories were ready by 1525. All these works are closely related. In all, the same principles are implied. No one of them is any more or less immoral than any of its fellows. They supplement each other, and by precept and example enforce the same conclusions. There is reason to believe that Machiavelli himself considered the art of war the most important of his books, but his fame in later generations has rested almost wholly upon the prince. The contents of the prince were little, if at all affected by Machiavelli's altered fortunes, though he hoped that if the book was read by the Medici, they might employ him in some official position for which his past life qualified him. 
This did not prevent him from developing, without any reserve, the conclusions which his studies and experience had enabled him to mature. He was primarily concerned neither with his own interests nor with the Medici family, but with the problems presented by the conditions of Italy in 1513. Ten years previously, he had written the words, Go forth from Tuscany and consider all Italy. His early writings, and in particular his diplomatic letters, are crowded with suggestions of the form which the conclusions would ultimately take. Slowly, through at least 14 years, his mind had moved in one direction, and new ideas of a wide compass and a lofty range had taken shape and asserted their claims to recognition. He had been a Florentine of the Florentines, hating Pisa and exulting over Venice, by 1513, he was almost persuaded to become an Italian, to merge the local in the national. Yet, although enthusiastic and at times even visionary, he was under no permanent delusion. The hope of an ultimate unity for Italy could not, under the circumstances, assume for him any precise form. Only as a far distant aspiration, a pervasive thought, it formed the large background of his speculation. He knew that union was not possible then, but he held in opposition to Giuseppe Ciardini that it was only through union that national prosperity becomes possible. Truly, no country was ever united or prosperous unless the whole of it passes beneath the sway of one commonwealth and one prince, as it happened in the cases of France and Spain. When, however, the possibility of such a thing in his own day was suggested to him, he was, he said, ready to laugh. No progress could be made in the presence of a disruptive papacy worthless soldiers, and divided interests. But if autonomy and independence of foreign control could be secured, the question would at once enter upon a new stage. Machiavelli did not mistake the problem, but he could not forecast the issues of the 19th century. The Prince, though not a complete novelty, became for many reasons a work of primary importance. Machiavelli was the earliest writer who consistently applied the inductive or experimental method to political science. What was new in method produced much that was new in results. The earlier manuals of statecraft rested upon assumptions transmitted through the medieval church. In Dante's time, and long afterwards, no man dared to discard the presuppositions of Christianity private judgment in politics, scarcely less than in theology, was disqualified, not because it might be incompetent, but is always ex hypothesi wrong, wherever authority is recognized. Abstract principles of justice, duty, morality form the foundation upon which the political theories of the Middle Age had been constructed. The reasoning from final clauses was almost universal. So long as these primary postulates were not revised, speculation trod and retrod the same confined area. What Machiavelli did was to shift the basis of political science and consequently to emancipate the state from ecclesiastical thraldom. Henceforth, the fictions of the realists, which had controlled the forms of medieval thought in nearly all departments, were set aside. The standard was to be no philosophic summum bonum, nor was the sic volo of authority to silence inquiry or override argument. An appeal was made to history and reason. The publicist was to investigate, not to invent, to record, not to anticipate, the laws which appear to govern men's actions. Machiavelli's method of reasoning was a challenge to existing authority and was believed to entail the disqualification, at least in politics, 
of the old revealed law of God in favor either of a restored and revised form of natural law or, at any rate, some new law which man might elicit independently of God from the accumulated records of human activity. The Prince was the first great work in which two authorities, the divine and the human, were clearly seen in collision and in which the venerable axioms of earlier generations were rejected as practically misleading and theoretically unsound. The simplicity and directness of its trenchant appeal to common experience and to the average intelligence won for the book a recognition never accorded to Machiavelli's other works. In The Prince, the discussion of the methods by which a new prince might consolidate his power developed into a contribution towards a new conception of the state, and the book not only furnished a summary of the means by which, in the circumstances then existing, the redemption of Italy might be accomplished, but inasmuch as the conditions of life repeat themselves and the recurrence of similar crises in the future was always possible. Recommendations, primarily directed to the solution of an immediately pressing difficulty, were enlarged in scope and came to have the intention of supplying in some measure, and with perhaps some minor reservations, a law of political action in all times. Beneath the special rules and maxims, new principles were latent, and though obscured occasionally by the form in which they were expressed, they can be disengaged without serious difficulty. Machiavelli, though his sympathies were Republican, knew that the times required the intervention of a despot. He had no hesitation in deciding the relative merits in the abstract of the democratic and monarchical forms of government. The rule of a people is better than that of a prince, when the problem was not how to establish a new government in the face of apparently overwhelming obstacles, but only to carry on what was already well instituted, a republic would be found far more serviceable than a monarchy. While the prince is superior to a people in instituting laws and shaping civil society and framing new statutes and ordinances, a people has the same superiority in preserving what is established. It is doubtful whether Machiavelli ever contemplated the creation of an enduring monarchy in Italy. The continuance of an absolute power would, he believed, corrupt the state. He was on the whole sanguine as to the possibilities of popular rule. He thought it reasonable to compare the voice of the people to the voice of God, and held with Cicero that the masses, though ignorant, may come to understand the truth. But the drastic form contemplated by him could not be achieved under republican institutions, which could only work satisfactorily among a people whose character was sound. Corruption had gone too far in Italy. It is corrupt above all countries. Moreover, a people into whom corruption has thoroughly entered cannot live in freedom. I do not say for a short time, but for any time at all. By corruption, Machiavelli understood primarily the decay of private and civic morality, the growth of impiety and violence, of idleness and ignorance, the prevalence of spite, license, and ambition, the loss of peace and justice, the general contempt of religion. It meant also dishonesty, weakness, and disunion. These things, he knew well, are the really decisive factors in national life. For the restoration of old ideals and the inauguration of a new golden age, he ex hypothesi looked to the state, and the state is plastic. It is wax in the hands of the legislature. He can stamp upon it any new form. The drift of such arguments is obvious. It may be taken for a general rule that a republic or a kingdom is never 
or very rarely well organized at its beginning or fundamentally renovated by a reform of its old institutions, unless it is organized by one man, wherefore the wise founder of a commonwealth who aims not at personal profit but at the general good and the desires to benefit not his own descendants but the common motherland ought to use every effort to obtain the authority for himself alone and no wise intellect will ever find fault with any extraordinary action employed by him for founding an empire or establishing a republic for though the act accuses him the result excuses him there were besides other reasons which held machiavelli to believe that in fifteen thirteen the undivided force of a despot was needed in every decaying state a class of men is to be found who whether the degenerate survivors of the old feudal nobility or upstart signori with no authoritative title at all are the enemies of all reform and who cannot otherwise be suppressed these gentle luomini live in idleness and plenty on the revenues of their estates without having any concern with their cultivation or undergoing any labor to obtain a livelihood they are mischievous in every republic and in every country yet more mischievous still are those who besides being so situated command fortified palaces and have subjects who obey them the kingdom of naples the territory of rome the romagna and lombardy are filled with these two classes of men for this reason, there has never been in those provinces any republic or free state, for such kinds of persons are absolutely antagonistic to all civil government. The attempt to introduce a republic into countries so circumstanced would not be possible. In order to reorganize them, supposing anyone had authority to do it, there would be no other way than to establish a monarchy, the reason being this where the body of the people is so corrupt that the laws are unable to curb it it is necessary to establish together with the laws a superior force that is to say the arm of a king mano regia which with absolute and overwhelming power may curb the overwhelming ambition and corruption of the nobles a republic therefore cannot initiate a fundamental reform it is moreover too divided in council and too dilatory in action supposing a republic had the same views and the same wishes as a prince it will by reason of the slowness of its movements take longer to come to a decision than he hence the remedies which republics apply are doubly hazardous when they have to deal with a crisis which cannot wait on these grounds machiavelli in pleading for the liberation of italy from her barbarian invaders addressed a prince the work of regeneration could logically be entrusted only to an armed despot it remained to investigate the methods to be employed and to consider what manner of man the reformer should be the general principle in forest was that all reform must be retrograde in the sense that it must bring back the state to its original condition restoring the old and looking for the ideal in the past it is a certain truth that all things in the world have a limit to their existence but those run the full course that heaven has in a general way assigned them which do not disorder their constitution but maintain it so ordered that it either does not alter or if it alters the change is for its advantage not to its detriment those alterations are salutary which bring states back towards their first beginnings those states consequently are best ordered and longest lived which by means of their institutions can be often renewed or else apart from their institutions may be renewed by some accident it is clearer than in the day 
that if these bodies are not renewed, they will not last. The way to renew them is, as has been said, to bring them back to their beginnings, because all the beginnings of republics and kingdoms must contain in themselves some excellence, by means of which they obtain their first reputation and make their first growth. And, as in the progress of time this excellence becomes corrupted, unless something intervenes which restores it to its primary condition, these bodies are necessarily destroyed. Such is the general rule for the guidance of the reformer. As isolation would involve failure, he must, in order to realize his object, make it his first business to secure the favor of the people. However difficult this might be, without some measure of popularity, success would be an impossibility. I reckon unhappy, those princes, who, to secure their state, are obliged to employ extraordinary methods, having the many for their enemies. For he who has the few for his enemies, readily and without serious difficulties, secures himself. But he who has for enemy the whole people never secures himself. And the more cruel he is, the weaker his rule becomes. So the best remedy within his reach is to try to make friends with the people. To win popularity and yet to conduct a thorough reform might seem hopeless. But Machiavelli found a solution of the difficulty in the blind ignorance of the people who may easily be deluded by the appearances of liberty. He who desires or intends to reform the government of a city must, if this reform is to be accepted and carried on with general approval, retain at least the semblance of the ancient methods, lest it should appear to the people that their constitution is changed, although in reality the new institutions are entirely different from the old. For the mass of mankind is fed with appearances as much as with realities. Indeed, men are more frequently stirred by what seems than by what is. Populus vult discipi et discipiator. There will, of course, be some few men who cannot be cheated. The new prince must not hesitate to kill them. When men individually or a whole city together offend against the state, a prince for a warning to others and for his own safety has no other remedy than to exterminate them. For the prince who fails to chastise an offender so that he cannot offend any more is reckoned an ignoramus or a coward. Elsewhere the language is even more explicit. He who is dead cannot think about revenging himself. But such violence would only be necessary in the early stages of a reformer's career, and a wise prince will so manage that the odium shall fall on his subordinates. He may thus secure a reputation for clemency, and in any case all cruelty must be finished at one stroke, and not subsequently repeated at intervals. Such a course would be less obnoxious than to confiscate property, for men would sooner lose their relatives than forfeit their money. Dead friends may sometimes be forgotten. The memory of lost possessions always survives. It is clear that the task of a reformer, as Machiavelli understood it, would require a very unusual combination of gifts and qualities. It appeared unlikely that anyone could be found with the ability and with the will to act without reference to traditional standards and without concession to the ordinary feelings of humanity. Machiavelli was not blind to the difficulties of the case. It had, first, a moral and emotional side. Whoever was to accomplish the salvation of Italy must be ready to sacrifice his private convictions and to ignore the rights of conscience. 
The methods which Machiavelli advocated were, he readily admitted, opposed to the life of a Christian, perhaps even to the life of a human being. Were the morally good to be set side by side with the morally evil? No one would ever be so mad or so wicked that if asked to choose between the two, he would not praise that which deserved praise and blame that which deserved blame. Machiavelli recognized with regret that it very seldom happens that a good man is willing to become prince by bad means, though his object be good. The desire for posthumous fame and the knowledge that a retrospective judgment would approve were powerful inducements, but after all, something weightier was required. Machiavelli was prepared to be logical. An extraordinary problem cannot be solved by a tender conscience. Honest slaves were always slaves, and good men are always paupers. Deceit and cruelty in any other instrument of empire, if they were led to success, would be understood and forgiven. Those who conquer in whatever way they conquer never reap disgrace. Success became the solvent of favorable distinctions, and judgment must follow results. And in the particular case of Italy, a further sanction for the Reformers' Acts might perhaps be found in the desperate condition of the country, and in the high end in view. Where the bare salvation of the motherland is at stake, there no consideration of justice or injustice can find a place, nor any of mercy and cruelty, or of honor and disgrace. Every scruple must be set aside, and that plan followed which saves her life and maintains her liberty. Supposing anyone prepared to accept this solution of the intellectual difficulties, it remained doubtful whether a man could be found with the practical ability and steadiness of nerve necessary to accomplish Machiavelli's design. He was sometimes sanguine, but at other times ready to despair. The condition of success would be thoroughness, and in the history of Rome he found evidences that men may, though rarely, avoid half-measures and have recourse to extremities. He knew that to halt between two opinions was always fatal, and that it was moreover not only undesirable but impossible to follow a middle course continuously. Unfortunately, human nature is apt to recoil from the extreme of evil and to fall short of the ideal of good. Men know not how to be gloriously wicked or perfectly good, and when a crime has somewhat of grandeur and nobility in it, they flinch. Yet a great crisis often brings to the front a great man. And in 1513, Machiavelli believed the moment had come. This opportunity must not be allowed to slip by, in order that Italy may at last see her Redeemer appear. The right man was, he believed, a Medici, who, with far greater resources, might succeed where Borgia had failed. His example was Cesare Borgia who at the time had alone, in any sort, attempted the work of consolidation, and while shrinking from no convenient crime, had damned himself intelligently. The Prince was not published in Machiavelli's lifetime, was almost certainly never presented either to Giuliano or to Lorenzo de' Medici, and as a practical manifesto with a special purpose in view, had no influence whatever. But the book summed up and interpreted the converging temper of political thought, and found an echo in the minds of many generations. When the discourses were known only to political theorists, when the Florentine histories were read only by students and the art of war had become extinct, the prince still continued to find a ready welcome from men immersed in the practical business of government. 
Later thinkers carried on the lines of reasoning suggested by Machiavelli and reached conclusions from which he refrained. At last it became clear that the problems associated with Machiavelli's name were in fact primitive problems arising inexorably from the conditions of all human societies. They form part of larger questions in which they become insensibly merged. When the exact place of Machiavelli in history has been defined, the issues which he raised will still subsist. The difficulties can only ultimately disappear when the progress of thought has determined in some final and conclusive form the necessary relations of all men to one another and to God. End of section 22.